you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. But first, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner is here, the Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Dr. Schreiner, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Austin. And we know, doctor, that you are busy, but you are staying with us for the full hour today to take everyone's questions. So thanks so much for that. My pleasure. And this is the point where I tell you, listening at home or in the car, if you have questions for the doctor, the doctor is flipping that sign in. We have an open line for you, 866-893-5722. Again, 866-893-5722. You can also email us, atcomments at kpcc.org. Tweet us at AirTalk or leave a comment on the Facebook page. Just be sure to include your city or neighborhood in L.A. because, you know, we like to know that kind of stuff. Well, doctor, just to start off, headline we saw yesterday, Omicron now accounts for 73% of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. As of the end of November, Delta had made up nearly all the U.S. cases. So what does this tell us about how easily Omicron is spread and that it's taken over so quickly? Well, I think it tells us a lot. Um, This is very clearly a much more infectious variant. And this is sort of a normal evolution of uh, a virus during a a pandemic like this. It wants to become infectious. And in some ways, it doesn't want to cause too much damage to the host that it's infecting. And so that's something we could be a little bit hopeful for uh, in terms of the um, uh, dangerous, uh, the danger of this particular virus and its its, uh, virulence. We hope that uh, it proves to be a little bit lesser variant. We don't know that for sure yet. I think a lot of people are assuming that, and we really don't have good data on that yet. But it is looking uh, like this may not be quite as nasty a player as Delta. Uh, but this is a normal process in the evolution of viruses. They, they always are searching for the more infectious version because basically that's their whole goal is just to infect the host and to make more virus. And so if they kill the host too quickly, then that's not very effective as a as a viral pathogen. Uh, But Delta has been the more virulent form, has certainly caused the bulk of hospitalizations among our unvaccinated individuals. And uh, this virus seems to be uh, taking over very quickly. Uh, We'll have to see how that plays out in the next few weeks. And I think this is relevant uh, given that headline that we're seeing, but Rosalind in Newport Beach emailed us and asked what makes the Omicron variant more transmissible. So really quickly, doctor, what is it about Omicron? Uh, well, that the makes it spread so fast. It has many new mutations on the spike protein, which is the attachment site of the virus to uh, our cells. 
And it's just made, it's adopted some of the best mutations from some of the other variants uh, that have emerged throughout this pandemic. And so it just makes it much more, uh, much sort of stickier, if you will, that it attaches very easily to the ACE2 receptors, which are lining our nose and our respiratory tract, and it gets a foothold in there very quickly. Uh, One of the things that we're beginning to observe is that it may uh, be sort of sustained in the air a little bit more effectively than perhaps some of the other variants so that that would also make it more infectious, that if it floats around in the air and it doesn't take as many particles to become infected, uh, that may also speak to its infectivity. But it's basically just this really sticky variant that glomps onto the uh, cells in the nasal epithelium, and there you go. Well, we have a number of comments and questions coming in, so I want to put out the number one more time. Just for anybody who has a question for the doctor, 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can tweet us or you can email us, comments at kpcc.org. And I should say that coming up at 1130 our time, President Biden will address the nation about the new Omicron variant. He's expected to issue, and this is a quote here, a stark warning about the need for vaccination and will detail additional steps that he'll take. Uh, but the White House is also saying that this speech is not about locking the country down. They're sure to specify that. And we will carry that speech for you live when that happens at 1130. So if you're still around at that time, come on back. We'll have that for you here. And doctor, that's something that I want to ask you about because President Biden will lay out his plans uh, to fight uh, Omicron, including preparing a thousand military medical professionals to help overburden hospitals, uh, setting up federal testing sites, deploying hundreds of federal vaccinators, and a big one, uh, to me anyway, is buying 500 million rapid tests to distribute free to the public. Big caveat on that, those will not be available until next month. So these seem fine and well, doctor, but... A lot of the chatter that I'm seeing on Twitter is that people are saying this should have been done months ago. What do you think, doctor? Well, I think there's a couple issues here. The first is that our testing platforms were not as accurate. You remember very early in this pandemic, we didn't have very much testing at all, and that was just a huge problem. And that is something we need to pay attention to, to always be ready to uh, develop and distribute uh, testing platforms for whatever pathogen comes down the road. I mean, this isn't going to be the last one, unfortunately. And so that that really showed a very big weakness in our federal health system, uh, in our public health system. Um, But through the pandemic, we've ramped it up, and we now have quite sophisticated and reasonably accurate rapid tests that can be done. They are not as good as a nasopharyngeal PCR, uh, but they are quite good. They can be about 85% effective. And they're very helpful for sort of immediate results if you're about ready to walk into a family gathering, especially with a vulnerable person who might be in that gathering. Uh, In terms of the deployment, I think the sooner they get them out there, the better. I think I would love to see, you know, five, ten rapid tests sent through the mail to every uh, American uh, with instructions on how to use it and encouragement to use it. Uh, That should not be, you know, that should be something that's a tool for everybody, whether you're vaccinated or not. and And it should be a very helpful one to decide how safe your gathering is. So I'm pleased that they're doing it. Um, it, You know, some of what perhaps it should have been done before, but there probably wasn't really the technology and the productivity at that point. Now we have quite good tests that are very effective and can be used quite easily, and people are getting used to using them. So this is another tool to help fight this pandemic. Considering that many of the treatments for a COVID infection are most effective if the virus is detected early, going forward into this surge, maybe getting us out of it as well, Uh, How important is testing, and do you think that people should maybe pick up a few tests just so they can have them at home just in case? 
Well, that's an excellent point, and that's absolutely true, is that um, we do have some very intriguing and hopefully helpful antiviral medications that are uh, in the process of being approved uh, that will be a very important part to play in controlling early disease. And so you have to have a diagnosis. And so having home testing that's reasonably accurate or testing that can be done easily at a doctor's office, uh, those are, that's really valuable information about when to start those medications uh, in someone who has symptoms. And so I think that's going to be an enormously important part of our toolbox uh, in fighting this disease and, uh, and, and a fairly easy one to do. You know, you feel a little bit, got a scratchy throat, have a little kind of lost your ten- sense of taste and smell, you get a rapid test, it's positive, you get started on Paxlovid or one of the other medications, uh, and then hopefully that will really subdue the uh, disease and, and, and produce rapid recovery and decreased infectiousness. You'll also know that you need to isolate from uh, your family and colleagues. Uh, and so it's a very, very important part of, of uh, our ability to control the pandemic and I think will be a very important tool going forward. Our producer, Matt, points out that the challenge now is going to be finding those tests. He saw a piece in the LA Times about how they are hard to find right now that does track with a lot of what I've seen on Twitter so far about people who have tried to find those. Uh, According to the CDC doctor, just over, looks around 54% of nursing home residents have received uh, a booster. Do you have any advice for people who are maybe hoping to spend time with an elderly relative this holiday season? Well, that's really going to be important. You know, it's important from a a mental health standpoint for both family members and for the uh, elderly family member themselves. And so we want for people to be able to do that. But we also want them to be mindful that if they are not, if they, the the visitor is not boosted, uh, even though they might be vaccinated, that they could certainly bring in the virus to their vulnerable elderly relative. And even if that relative is boosted, they may be in an age group or in some sort of medic, have some sort of medical condition that may not have produced enough antibodies to be fully protected. So they might be vaccinated, boosted, but we need to be very, very careful about the individuals who go see them. That's where testing is a good idea. You get a rapid test, your test is negative that morning. You wear a good mask when you go in to visit your relative in a skilled nursing facility. Most of these skilled nursing facilities are requiring proof of vaccination and or testing. Some might even require both. I don't know. Uh, and then you can, you know, have a nice visit with the person that you're with. But um, so, again, they're cumbersome and they're annoying that we can't just walk in the door and hug our loved one. But it's very, very important to keep them safe. I got one more question and then we're going to take some questions from our listeners here. But there is a high probability that a lot of people could get infected in the next few weeks. And, you know, just so people know, could you maybe maybe walk us through what to do if you are infected or if you think you might be infected, what to do if you test positive, if you're feeling the symptoms, are there things you should do at home and at what point should you consider going to a hospital? Well, those are very good questions. The first thing I would recommend is if you are not boosted, well, first of all, if you are not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. This is a very, very serious infection and it will find you. It's it's really going to look for unvaccinated individuals and it continues to do that and we certainly have seen the hospitals Uh, largely the inpatients are unvaccinated individuals. If you are vaccinated, get a booster right away. Do it right now. The sooner you get it, the more protected you will be, uh, and then you don't have to worry as much about when you might have an exposure. If you develop a runny nose or a scratchy throat or you lose your sense of taste and smell or you have a very bad headache that seems out of the ordinary, perhaps you attended some sort of event a few days before, three to five days as kind of incubation period, then it would be prudent for you to get tested. 
Rapid testing is helpful if you can get it, um, but there are many testing centers all over the city and the county where you can get tested. It's free. There's a drive-in one at the Rose Bowl here in Pasadena. Um, you can get the results within about 24 hours or so. And during that time period, if you are very suspicious that you might have COVID or you're worried that you might have COVID, then go ahead and isolate yourself. Don't mix with family members. Don't attend another party. Don't go to work. That's a very, very important thing. We don't want people who are feeling ill or suspect they might have COVID to go to work because then that just exposes everybody else and it just becomes a really very difficult thing to do, contact tracing. Uh, If you're feeling poorly, you can take some Tylenol uh, for symptoms. You can take Advil as well. Um, You want to watch, you know, your symptoms. If you're fully vaccinated and boosted, chances are it will be a very mild episode, uh, and you can, um, you know, get through it with just a a little bit of Tylenol and some fluids and chicken soup or something. Uh, If you start getting short of breath or have a very persistent cough or a very high fever uh, or any other symptom that's worrisome, then it's time to go to the emergency room and when you get to the ER to tell the, the uh, intake people, I think I perhaps might have COVID, and they will screen you and put you in the appropriate place and then take care of you. So that's sort of the scenario. The other thing to remember is that if the whole family is exposed to someone, all those people need to try to sort of at least stay at home together, or if they can, if it's one or two individuals that are isolated, then they need to, to stay away from each other if they possibly can in the, in the home. That's difficult for many people, but... Uh, they also need to isolate if they've been exposed to somebody with COVID. It's very important. Thank you for that, doctor. And if anybody listens to this and you need to hear it all over again, there is, of course, the AirTalk podcast. You can also look this up online if you feel like you might be in a situation like this in the coming weeks. We're talking to Dr. Schreiner, and we have a line open, 866-893-5722. Again, 866-893-5722. You can also email comments at kpcc. We have a number of listener questions, so I'm going to dive right into those. Uh, Stuart from West L.A. is asking, what should we, uh, when should we expect boosters to be available to those under the age of 18? Uh, well, Stuart, they actually are available now between, for 16- and 17-year-olds, um, and if they are anywhere between probably four to six months uh, out from their previous second shot, they should get a booster. That's a very important part of trying to uh, ward off Omicron. It clearly is something that needs to have that extra little oomph when it comes to the neutralizing antibodies, the, the molecules that help um, de- uh, sort of deter the virus from, from becoming infected and sick with it. So 16 to 17-year-olds have now been approved for a booster. We expect the FDA to probably drop that, do- uh, drop that age in the next few weeks. Uh, they are looking at that in England right now because, of course, they have a massive problem with this variant and are looking between basically to boost all children between 5 to 18. Now, remember that many of the younger children have just now received uh, maybe just their first vaccine and or their second vaccine, so they're not quite in the range for a booster yet, and they probably have fairly high neutralizing antibodies, at least for right now. So, um, so that crowd is probably fairly well protected anyway. But eventually down the road, I think this is going to be a three-part vaccine series. I think that's pretty clear. You need that extra vaccine a little ways away from your second shot to really lock in the immunity that you need to protect yourself from this virus. We have had some people write in and asking about that booster shot and whether it would make sense to get a booster on top of that booster, considering uh, some of the data that came out from Moderna yesterday about how much more effective that could be against preventing Omicron. What do you think, doctor? If a person's already had their booster, uh, is is it extra credit? 
if they go out and get another booster, not recommending at this time, what do you think? Not recommending. We don't have data on whether a fourth vaccine is needed at this point. Could it be needed down the road? It's a possibility. Um, the booster levels that you get after the third shot in a healthy individual are very high. I mean, they're just kind of three, 35 times what they were uh, after the second shot. So that should last for quite a while. Uh, and I think, you know, right now where most people have sort of received their booster within the last couple of months, I think they're probably got you know, riding along in a, with a pretty high level of neutralizing antibodies and are fairly stable. So I don't think at this point adding a booster on top of that is going to, to add much. You know, you need to have a certain level of antibodies getting more and more and more and higher and higher doesn't, doesn't give you any advantage. Uh, and, um, you know, we want to use these vaccines properly. More is not necessarily better at this time. We know that the booster dose, however, is very, very important. And that really is going to be probably part of how we use these vaccines successfully. Well, we have many questions, but Dr. Schreiner, I just want to start off this conversation by saying that a lot of people I've talked to so far, they have plane tickets booked. A lot of plans were made when the pandemic was in a slightly better place. What advice would you give right now to people who are planning to fly soon? I certainly understand the dilemma. I mean, the timing of this has been very difficult for people. And I think it's, um, as really what's happened in the last many months and what's going forward, we have to kind of do risk assessment. Um, if the trip is not essential, if it can be postponed, I sort of like to use the word postponement now, not cancellation, because I think that cancellation mm. has a whole different meaning. So um, if it can be postponed, then that's probably the prudent thing to do. Traveling is a high-risk uh, procedure. Not so much when you're on the aircraft because their filtration systems are quite good, uh, but certainly when you're passing through the airport, there's lots and lots of people traveling. You're mixing with all kinds of unknown people, and so that's where a lot of transmission probably occurs. Um, it's also very difficult to travel right now because of the need for uh, pre-travel testing and so forth. Um, so if it can be postponed, that's probably the safest um, option. If you have to travel, uh, you really have to visit a relative who might be ill or there's just uh, circumstances where you need to do it, then I would certainly recommend uh, that you get tested before you go, uh, just in case uh, you need to have that information when you arrive at your destination. Um, that you also use a high-quality mask, such as an N95 when you're on the aircraft. Cloth masks, uh, I think Dr. Lena Wynn said this best yesterday, were sort of, are just sort of uh, facial uh, adornment and ornaments. They really don't wow. uh, prevent that much transmission for this particular variant. In the old days, you know, it's better than nothing, but it's certainly not very effective. So a three-ply surgical mask or best yet a well-fitting N95 for the trip on the aircraft and through passing through the airport is probably the best option there. Try to maintain as much social distancing as you can. It's very tricky when you're going through security and so forth. And then when you get to your destination, especially especially if you're going to visit a vulnerable relative or friend, it would be prudent to get tested um, and uh, so that they know that, um, at least at that point in time, generally we like you to be tested you know, two to three days after you arrive, but timing may be problematic. So getting a test before you visit them is a good idea. If it's someone who's very vulnerable, then you certainly, while you're visiting them, you still want to wear a mask, uh, a high-quality mask to prevent transmission. So... That's how you can do it. It's very complicated and cumbersome, um, but if it's absolutely necessary and that's where you want to play one of your risk cards, then uh, that's how you do it. I think this is worth highlighting again about facial masks and how cloth masks amount to little more than facial adornment at this point because I'm still seeing, I mean, I, I don't even know how to estimate it, but predominantly 
cloth masks or the kind of the the flimsy sort of ones, you know, the blue ones with the, the little the, the the elastic on the sides. Uh, I do see that masks have become more plentiful uh, and more affordable online. Um, would you recommend our KN95 masks uh, also acceptable? Because those have definitely come down in price. Yeah, KN95s, KN95s are available online, too. They're a little more expensive. For a high-risk um, sort of event like going through the airport, if you can get an N95, that's the best best protection. And masks are very, very protective. The floppy you know, masks that we that you were describing, Austin, are not, not very effective. And half the time they ride below people's noses. That doesn't do any good. Um, and uh, they're just, they don't fit tightly to the face. Uh, so what you can do if you want to make a fashion statement is wear an N95 or a KN95 and wear a cloth mask over that. That gives you a little bit of additional protection, plus you can make some sort of stylish statement there. So, um, but the tighter the fitting mask, the better in terms of on your face. Now, if you're on a very long flight, that might get a little uncomfortable after a while. Good N95 masks fit pretty well and are, are certainly fit well and are reasonably comfortable. I wear them sometimes six or eight hours a day when I'm in the hospital. So um, it's, it's doable. You get used to it, and um, it'll protect you. Any mask is better than no mask, but the cloth masks, are, especially with this particular variant, are not going to provide you much protection. So get a three-ply surgical mask uh, and or a KN95 or an N95, especially the latter, if you're going to be doing some high-risk behavior like traveling. We have a message from Maura in West L.A. Maura says, I received the J&J vaccine back in March and got the Moderna booster recently. Do I need an additional shot? And this is the question that seemed important to me. Am I as protected as someone who got three mRNA shots? That's a great question, Maura. And uh, yes, you should be uh, sufficiently protected. Um, You know, it's unfortunate that the adenovirus-based vaccines, which unfortunately is what most of the world has received, all of the Chinese vaccines, the Russian vaccine, uh, and of course, J&J and AstraZeneca are all adenovirus-based vaccines. They have been kind of a disappointment um, that they don't seem to be performing well with the variants, especially this one. Uh, and <clears throat> J&J has had a few complications that, of uh, blood clotting disorders and so forth. And you, most people have heard that the FDA is looking at it again very carefully, uh, whether, you know, it's always a risk-benefit ratio. But if you have the J&J and you're now boosted with Moderna, you're doing fine. So there's no reason to get another booster on top of that. Uh, and that should provide you with the same protection that someone who's had three mRNAs. S. Scott in Pasadena asks how testing for the variant works. If He says, if I know someone who tested positive, do we know whether that's one of the variants? How is testing for the variants done? Are people who test positive notified of the variant that they have? It's a good question. Yeah, that's a, kind of a, a misunderstanding. So uh, to, to, un, to test for the presence of Omicron, that's called genomic testing. And those are sent out to very specialized laboratories. It's a very complicated uh, and in sort of involved procedure to identify the variant type. So uh, people's viruses are not routinely checked for what kind of variant. It's not a test that you can do even in a hospital right now. About 10% of positive tests throughout the county are sent to the state and, and state labs for genomic testing to see what the, what, what's circulating, and that gives them a very good idea if <clears throat> every single one of those samples shows Omicron, then we know we've got a problem. Uh, so easy, quick 
uh, hospital-based or clinic-based genomic testing is not available. Um, you just know whether you have COVID or not. And it sort of doesn't matter because, frankly, all of the interventions that we would do are the same. This is probably more important from an epidemiologic standpoint uh, rather than a clinical standpoint. But the bottom line is is that um, genomic testing is not widely available routinely. It's just an important epidemiologic tool. Darren from Twin Peaks says, I got myocarditis from my second Moderna shot. With that in mind, should I get a Moderna booster or would the doctor recommend getting Pfizer? That sounds like a question he might need to ask his doctor, but I'll put it to you because I'm sure there's somebody else out there with a similar question, doctor. Yeah, so uh, the myocarditis issue is a tricky one. Um, Myocarditis is a fairly common side effect with many different types of viruses, not just coronaviruses. We know that COVID very often can cause uh, myocarditis. It's very, very, very unusual uh, for vaccines to do that, but there have been some reported cases, and perhaps Darren is one of them. Um, I would discuss it with his physician because I don't have any idea of how severe his episode was. If it was just a mild episode, then they may uh, want to go ahead and proceed with a booster with one with Pfizer. Um, there's not a lot of difference between the two, uh, and myocarditis is a very kind of random event. It may happen once and then not happen again. Uh, it might be prudent to measure his antibody levels. If his antibody levels are pretty high right now, then to maybe wait a little bit longer before the boost happens. Um, but uh, it's something I think that's probably really, a, since it's a very unusual event, I would discuss that with his physician. I'll also file this one under a question that many people probably have, so we'll try to get an answer to it. Roberta in Koreatown says, I've been using the KN95 masks for weeks. Is it okay to wash and reuse it? My guess is no, doctor, is it? Uh, No, you can't wash them. Um, You know, if you're really down to the wire in terms of not having any other masks, one thing you can do, of course, today's not a very good day to do that, but you can put it out in the sun and let it kind of bake in the sun a little bit. Um, KN95s are pretty substantial. You can use them for a few days, um, but you do want to change them out fairly frequently. They get they accumulate other kinds of uh, bacteria and stuff like that, and so I think and their um, efficacy begins to deteriorate if the material begins to break down. So, you know, they're not very expensive. Get get as many as you can so you can change them out. You know, every day would be ideal, um, but it, you know, every other day or so, and just put them in the sun for a little bit. Uh, A question from Jake in Glendale. It's a unique one. Are there any updates for the pediatric COVID-19 vaccine? And he says, this is because, this is a quote here, my four-year-old has been feeling left out and wants hers soon. That's that's incredible. But what are the updates on that front? Well, good for the four-year-old. That's a very enlightened child. Uh, So um, the developments are that they are looking at that. Both Moderna and Pfizer are looking at children from as young as age as six months. Uh, to uh, provide them with some protection. We don't know when that's going to go through the EUA process, uh, but I would expect in light of the Omicron situation that it will be sped up a little bit. So hopefully in the next few weeks we'll have some information once they gather more uh, data on just making sure that the risk balance situation looks good. There have been some early studies they were having to adjust the amount of Uh, the dosing on those uh, a little bit for young children um, and some of the earlier dosing regimens didn't work as well. So I know that both Moderna and Pfizer have been uh, re-examining that. But I anticipate probably by mid-January or so we'll have some better information and it may well be approved for that age group. So tell her to hang in there. Hang in there. Uh, Thomas and Los Feliz emailed, will the Omicron variant bring us closer to herd immunity? You know, Thomas, as much as I would love to have herd immunity. 
Um, but I think that we're not going to get there with this particular virus. And what Omicron may do is, again, it might, because it's more infectious, if it's less virulent, if it's less likely to make people sick, uh, then it may spread so quickly that, you know, that, that so many people get it that the virus really won't have any place to go. Um, I think with something that's this infectious, it can be very hard to reach herd immunity. Uh, you know, when you have something that's this infectious, then the, the herd immunity levels go from, let's say, it was maybe 75 or 80 percent for the Delta variant to uh, have to achieve herd immunity. For a virus that's this infectious, you're going to have to have 95 to 99 percent. In other words, everybody's got to be vaccinated or have had the disease. That may happen. That's certainly a possibility. I think it was the Austrian health minister who said people are either going to be recovered, vaccinated, or dead with this pandemic. Mm. That may be where we head if this variant turns out to be as infectious as it's showing. But the good news is, I think, we're, we're just hoping that this is the case, that it may be less nasty. And if that's the case, then we won't see the overwhelming amounts of, of tragedy that we've been seeing with Delta. That being said, the hospitals are still battling, as is ours, the Delta situation. And they are really pretty much up to their nose in, in uh in COVID and, and other problems. Plus, we have this enormous backlog of people that need to have bypass surgeries and cancer surgeries, mm. gallbladder surgeries. And so that's why the hospital stability is so critical uh, in a functional society. If the hospitals collapse, that's a catastrophe of a whole different level. And that's why it's so very important. And, and President Biden is, I think, sending out military personnel to try to bolster up some of these hospitals that are kind of going under. How concerned are you, doctor, about the long haulers? We used to talk about them a lot, and now that it seems like a number of people uh, will likely get the Omicron variant, how concerned are you about a generation of people who have lingering issues as a result of a COVID infection? Well, I'm very concerned about long haulers. We have a long hauler clinic uh, at Huntington Hospital that we started uh, when this first became noticed. It's not clear how likely Omicron is going to do this, but we certainly know uh, people that have have coronavirus infections, especially if they're not vaccinated. Vaccination may protect you uh, from a long hauler syndrome. Uh, there's some data that's coming out that looks promising in that department, so that's another reason to get vaccinated. 30% of people who have COVID, even if it's mild disease, can develop symptoms of long hauler syndrome, uh, chronic fatigue, severe headaches, um, brain fog, uh, all of those sort of well-described symptoms now. And it's, we don't know what's causing it. It's some sort of immune disorder or immune dysregulation, and we really don't have very much treatment for it. It's possible that some of these antivirals might play a role there. It's a very intriguing idea, just like we see with HIV. There might be areas where the virus is actually continuing to sort of hang around, even though you've recovered, and maybe those medications will be helpful. We'll see. But it's a very mysterious and quite debilitating uh, problem. And so I think that uh, it's something we've got to address. And in response to that, too, Austin, I think we have to think about the overall trauma that all of us are experiencing mm. in this pandemic. That is going to have a long-lasting effect on everybody because yeah. that's we're living through this thing. And it's very, very traumatic. And I think that that's a, the mental health sort of aspects that we see with even people who never get COVID but have to, you know, kind of worry about it constantly and adjust their life, that's very debilitating. And so I think these are very important issues. And I know you're having a therapist come on in the second hour. I'll be very interested to hear what they have to say about some of those. Yeah, because it really just stands out to me, Dr. Ho, we're still in it after all this time. And so in some ways, 
I'm sure we start processing it throughout, but if I'm imagining there might come a day for me or for many of us where we just sit down and we think, wow, that happened. Like something so unimaginable. Yeah, I think it's taken so. a long time to kind of get a, get our arms around. This has happened to us. We feared it would happen. It has happened. It is happening. It's still happening. It's not going away. Uh, it is lasting longer than the 1918 pandemic. It's probably worse than the 1918 pandemic in some ways. But we have amazing tools to try to control it, uh, not the least of which, of course, are the vaccines. And that is an incredible achievement in science and, and, and a tribute to the people that have been working so hard to try to get on top of this. We know what to do. We know how to do it. We just have to develop all the different testing and therapeutic and prophylactic medications and so forth, bolstering up our public health department so they can handle this and handle the next one better. Uh, you know, they are doing a fantastic job, but they are so understaffed and exhausted. Uh, bolstering up our healthcare professionals, making sure that hospitals have enough PPE. We've learned a lot from this, and I think that you know, I think we can we can handle this. We know what to do. This is another surge. Just you know what, it's raining. Put on your raincoat, people. It's we'll get through it, but it's going to be a little bit of a rough ride. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kbcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.